The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about genetics and privacy and biotechnology in our lives. And in fact, we are going to be welcoming back one of my very favorite guests who is just brilliant and expert on genetic privacy and now he has a new book out and he is the editor of this book along with Sheldon Krimsky and the name of it is Biotechnology in Our Lives What Modern Genetics Can Tell You About Assisted Reproduction, Human Behavior, Personalized Medicine and much more and boy this much more is a a stuff that really scares you. I've been Reading this book, it's a wonderful book, a series of essays, and oh my goodness, it's um, it's very enlightening, but it's a little bit scary too. So let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful guest, Jeremy Gruber. He is the president of the Council for Re- Responsible Genetics, and since 1983, CRG, which is the Council for Responsible Genetics, has represented the public interest and fostered public debate regarding the social, ethical, and environmental impact of emerging genetic technologies. We hear about this all the time. Now, this organization is the only biotech public interest organization that is explicitly dedicated to examining the best science, interpreting the results, assessing the implications, and communicating them to the public and facilitating meaningful, measurable change. CRG also publishes a a bi-monthly magazine, Gene Watch, that explores emerging issues in biotechnology. So Jeremy is an expert on issues of genetic privacy and discrimination, and for over 15 years, he's been working on genetic non-discrimination legislation at the state and federal level, and he played a major role in the passage of the Federal Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which was passed by Congress in 2008. And he's also been helpful with uh, California's new CalGena Act, uh, which was in 2011. He's the founder and executive committee member of the Coalition for Genetic Fairness, which is a group of 500 organizations that advocate for genetic non-discrimination protections in D.C. on Capitol Hill. He's a prolific writer and on privacy issues from the direct to consumer genetics to forensic DNA databases. And he's often consulted 
you know, to speak and testify in Congress and other federal agencies. And you've seen him on TV and radio and all sorts. And we're just so thrilled. He's been on our show, I think, twice before. And it's always such a pleasure. He's brilliant. And you can learn a lot more about the organization if you go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You'll see the uh, um, his his photo, the the JPEG of his book. And we link to his JPEG for the organization, which is Consul for Responsible Genetics.org. Jeremy, thanks for joining us all the way from New York. We sure appreciate it. Thanks for having me again, Mari. Well, this is a wonderful book. And, it, you know, it's a little bit scary when I see this guy, you know, in this white coat and he's got all these things here. This is, the, you know, this biotechnology is kind of uh, futuristic, but it's not really futuristic, is it? No, it, it's not, and I and I think uh, the the primary reason uh, behind uh, the book is to really uh, explain to people just uh, in how many different spheres of their life biotechnology is already playing a significant role, um, and uh, and how much more of a role it's likely to play in the very near future. Right. So when you thought of, I know you guys have been doing a lot of publications. So what led you to actually put this book together? Well, since the founding of, of the Council for Responsible Genetics in the early 1980s, uh, as you mentioned, we've been uh, producing a magazine called Gene Watch uh, that covers uh, the social and ethical implications of biotechnology. Uh, and uh, we have a, a pretty good uh, list of subscribers, and we put articles up on our website, but we really wanted to, to make sure that the public, uh, the greater public, had access to all the great articles that have appeared in GeneWatch uh, over the years uh, by many leading experts uh, in the world on issues uh, uh, related to biotechnology. So we brought together the very best essays that we've produced in six separate categories uh, over the 30-year run of the magazine. Uh, and, uh, and it, you know, after that, it was pretty easy to put together a book. In fact, most of the work was deciding what not to put in it. Right. I bet that was hard, too. <laughs> Yeah, always, always a challenge. Right. So what are some of the most important or newsworthy issues that, that you really want people in the public to know about that are included in this book? Well, the book covers six separate topic areas, uh, and these are areas uh, where biotechnology is playing a leading role in people's lives uh, right now. Uh, and these are, of course, genetics and medicine, which is probably the most likely category people will think of. But uh, we also cover areas of assisted reproduction, behavioral genetics, uh, forensic DNA, uh, law which is law enforcement use of DNA, uh, genetics and popular culture, uh, and of course, probably most interesting to many of your listeners, genetic privacy and discrimination issues. Right. So um, what are some of the misconceptions that you tried to lay to rest in this book? Well, I think probably the the largest misconception, the one uh, probably the biggest misconception that uh, that spurred the the founding of our organization and continues to motivate our work, is to uh, to really educate the public about the role uh, the the science of genetics, to really understand what role genetics actually plays in human development, and to work against. Uh, what often is a deterministic and reductionist uh, philosophy that tends to emanate from those that are trying to uh, make money in the world of biotechnology. 
So, so what do you think the public thinks about this now? I mean, do you think that there's any fear out there that they have any idea? What, what do you gather from, from just being out there and talking on the, about this and testifying in Congress? Well, I think people are really excited about uh, biotechnology. I think they're excited about the promise of biotechnology. I think too often uh, the promise of biotechnology is significantly overstated by those who are promoting uh, various technologies. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I think there is also a lot of concern, concern about how these technologies will be used uh, in, to ensure that there is proper regulation, that they're being used ethically, and, uh, and that privacy uh, is protected and that uh, no discrimination occurs. You know, people are probably thinking, how the heck did you get into this? I mean, this is, you know, you've been in it a long time already. And how did, how did this, your interest get, um, you know, spurred by this whole idea of genetic privacy? Well, it was really uh, by happenstance. I, uh, when I graduated from law school, my first job was with the American Civil Liberties Union. And on the very first day, uh, I was uh, given the task of working on, on a very nascent uh, area of policy work around genetic discrimination. And this would have been uh, in the mid-1990s when uh, it was really more fantasy than reality. Uh, and it was through working uh, on genetic discrimination specifically, working on a number of state bills, and then, of course, working for 15 years on what became uh, the Genetic Information on Discrimination Act in Congress, I became, you know, really excited about what was going on in genetics and biology and uh, what could happen and what might happen, and to make sure that we have a proper ethical framework to ensure that everything that happens does so in the public interest. Mm. And uh, and so that's that's something that's motivated my work ever since. That's it's admirable. I mean, you have a really wonderful passion for it, too, which I love. So let's talk about really what's upcoming, uh, what kind of important legislation that we have coming up on the Hill. What's going on up there now? Well, unfortunately, not a lot. Uh, and that, that's the problem. Um, we, uh, we're in a real revolution uh, in the way uh, genetics is being incorporated um, into a whole host of the areas of, of science. Um, and unfortunately, we, uh, we are having a lot of discussions about what types of ethical frameworks uh, might uh, be, be necessary. Um, but in terms of a legislative response, uh, there's been very little. Um, there is a bill that's been introduced uh, in California by Senator Padilla uh, recently that would address what we call surreptitious collection of genetic information. Uh, this is where, for example, somebody might take uh, a DNA sample of yours, because of course we leave our DNA wherever we go. Right. Uh, and they might take that DNA sample and, uh, and send it into a commercial company to sequence it uh, for various purposes. Uh, this is legislation that would prohibit it in the state of California. A number of states already prohibit it. Um, but there is no federal law in this area. And aside from the Genetic Information on Discrimination Act, which actually only covers health insurance and employment, we really have no general privacy law uh, in this country to address uh, the use of genetics. 
Um, and uh, we have a, a real push to integrate uh, genetic technologies into clinical care. Uh, and there are some potential important benefits to that, um, but unfortunately, the uh, the science is moving far faster uh, than than the law and regulation. What about permission and consent? Um, you know, you were talking just now about the, the the danger of surreptitious collection of DNA because we leave it everywhere. You know, I have my cup sitting here next to me, right? And and as I drink my cup. My mouth is on this, and I'm sure that my DNA and my hands are on here, right? So I'm sure that my DNA are just sitting on there. What What about, do do, do I have any right? Maybe with the law enforcement, do I have any right about, um, you know, search and seizure with that? Or what? Well, you know, unfortunately, you, you don't. And, you know, law enforcement is an area that uh, is often not discussed nearly as much as uh DNA privacy in other areas, but it's an area where uh, the concerns and risks to privacy are are greater, uh, perhaps, than any other. And uh, and the collection and use of DNA by law enforcement, which can be a very good thing, of course, in terms of uh, apprehending suspects. Right. But the expansion of DNA databases. Um, and the collection of DNA in the United States and around the world is uh, taking place quite rapidly, really outside any type of general public discussion about where the limitations of police access to DNA should be. And as a result, we're seeing uh, states across the country uh, passing laws pretty regularly now, expanding their DNA databases and, and collection efforts beyond sort of the areas where I think we can all collectively agree uh, would be appropriate areas uh, where you have uh, an individual, a convicted murderer, rapist, um, whose DNA is taken by police. But now uh, we're expanding it to categories uh, of very minor crimes. Uh, New York recently, last year, passed a law uh, that allows uh, the police to take DNA for anyone convicted of any crime, essentially. So if you're caught speeding... <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you can you can actually have your DNA collected uh, in the state of New York, and and that is a growing trend. And of now, course, let me now, ask you something. Even if you're not DNA beyond just yeah. just people who've been convicted of crimes, yeah, that was I was going to ask you. But now they're also collecting mm-hmm. DNA of people who've been arrested. Yes, people who haven't even been proven to have committed a crime yet are having their DNA collected, and sometimes collected indefinitely. Right, right. And now, I mean, with these huge databases, you can collect all this and keep it forever. Right. I mean, literally. Well, absolutely. And, you know, we, you know, too often, uh, particularly in the law enforcement context, uh, they, 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 they will minimize the privacy concerns because, of course, they take, they say they, they'll take a DNA, what's called a DNA profile, uh, which is essentially a computer algorithm based upon your DNA sample that goes into a database and they'll tell you that, you know, that, that information is limited to identification only. Uh, but, of course, they still maintain those DNA samples. The actual DNA sample from which the profile that goes to the database is taken is still maintained by law enforcement. It's oftentimes not destroyed. And, of course, DNA itself is a very robust source of information about individuals, everything from ancestry to, uh, to health status. Right. Uh, and so uh, how the actual DNA uh, is kept is oftentimes... Uh, uh, far less transparent than how the profile that's taken from it is being used by law enforcement. Yeah, and you know, there was an article in here, and I didn't have a chance to read it yet, but it sure, um, you know, 
it perked my interest, and that's the one, Why DNA is Not Enough. That was an article that uh, Elizabeth Webster wrote, and I don't know um, what, what what was the essence of that. Do you remember that why DNA is not enough in, in law enforcement when you're trying to convict someone? Well, because you have to realize, and, and I think this is what we... Unfortunately, um, and we actually cover this also in the book in, in the area of, of how DNA is portrayed in the media, right. uh, too often we think of DNA, uh, the use of law, law enforcement's use of DNA uh, in the context of uh, programs like CSI. Right. Um, but, but DNA does not mean that, you know, DNA at a crime scene does not necessarily mean that you con- committed a crime. Right. It simply means that you were there. Right. And it, it doesn't even mean that you were there when the crime was actually, that actually took place, of course. It Your sure DNA could be the day before, yeah. Prior to or subsequent to the crime. Right. Um, so DNA is a very strong source of, uh, uh, of information. Uh, it's a very valuable police tool. Uh, but unfortunately, too often uh, DNA is over-relied upon. Um, by uh, by law enforcement, um, and uh, and that that can result in in mistakes. You know, we right. we talk about DNA uh, as if, if it's infallible, and of course, your DNA as an identifier is extremely robust. But any enterprise uh, that requires human intervention, like the police taking your DNA and it going to a laboratory, involves a lot of uh, human. Uh, falli- fallibility and right. potential for human error. Right. Uh, and we see uh, mistakes happen with DNA all the time. In fact, uh, what is often not mentioned when, when we talk about the power of DNA to exonerate people who have been uh, uh, convicted of crimes that they did not commit is that some of the people who've been exonerated were convicted in the first place because of uh, with the use of DNA. Right, right. So, so DNA is a very important police tool, but we can't over-rely upon it, and we have to use it in context uh, and put it uh, with other sources of information to make sure that people are that, that the DNA is being used uh, properly. Right, and the right person is being convicted, even if several people were in the room at the same time when the guy was killed or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the civil side and, and some of the things that will that most of us are probably well, at least I'm I get worried about how how can uh, genes keep us from qualifying for health insurance? Well, in most contexts, they can't anymore, uh, and that's only because we've recently passed laws to address uh, genetic discrimination in health insurance. In two thousand eight. Uh, the Genetic Information on Discrimination was, Act was passed. It, it became effective the next year. And it now prohibits employers and health insurers um, from collecting genetic information and from using it inappropriately. Um, but what GINA doesn't cover uh, are a whole host of other areas uh, where genetic information might be used to discriminate. Uh, beginning with other forms of insurance. I was just going to uh, ask you, yeah, what about my, you know, uh, getting homeowner's insurance if they think that I'm going to die because I have a predisposition to some kind of terrible disease? Well, that's possible. We've, we have certainly seen uh, genetic information used in decisions regarding life, disability, and long-term care insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, CalGINA, which was passed by California in 2011, which built upon the foundations of the federal law, uh, did expand 
protections uh, from the misuse of genetic information to a whole host of, of categories, such as the ones we've just discussed. Right. But most states don't have those expanded protections. Uh, and uh, so the use of genetic information in a variety of contexts uh, remains unprotected in most places in the United States. Hmm. So what what should we know about genetics in childbirth? Oh, I, th- I think I remember hearing, and I don't know if this is still going on, that Minnesota would immediately um, take the DNA of all children born in Minnesota. Is that still well, happening? Well, it's, it's not just Minnesota. Mm-hmm. One of the areas of genetic privacy that is probably m- most poorly understood by the public is uh, is the area of newborn screening. Uh, every child in the United States uh, today and for the last about 20 years, um, when they're born in the hospital, uh, a blood spot is taken. That blood spot is then sent to the state public health department and is screened for uh, a whole host of inherited genetic disorders. Uh, that some of which, most of which are treatable, some of which uh, aren't. Um, and that can be a very good thing. Uh, there are a number of inherited genetic disorders that, when caught uh, right away, can be treated. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a very good thing, and, and it's, an, it's one of the ways uh, where uh, areas where biotechnology has really helped improve the human condition. But the system that we've created in the United States um, uh, to handle uh, newborn blood screening uh, has, is a very unusual one. Uh, it's the only system related to health care uh, where your, your health information goes to the state. Mm. It doesn't go to your doctor. It doesn't go to your hospital. It doesn't go to uh, a, a separate site, um, commercial site that tests it for the hospital. It goes to the public health department. Uh, and the public health department screens it, and then they, and then in depending upon the state, for periods of time, sometimes indefinitely, they'll maintain that sample. Um, that uh, and interestingly enough, the consent procedures uh, in most states are horrendous. Mm. Uh, in fact, I would venture to guess that most people, uh, upwards of ninety uh, percent uh, in many states don't realize that they've even consented to, ha- to allow this to be done. Yeah. And they certainly don't know what's happening with the sample after the testing occurs and the, and the information is provided uh, for, for follow-up medical care. Uh, and too often, unfortunately, uh, this system is promoted as benefiting uh, the public health in terms of subsequent use of those samples. But a lot of studies that we've done have found that most, in most states, uh, once the samples have been screened, they tend to, to sit in state health uh, uh, biobanks that are not used for any general public purpose. Um, and oftentimes these biobanks have incredibly poor security. Uh, sometimes it's incredibly antiquated. Um, we've talked to states uh, where... Uh, the information is uh, is carried in openly accessible uh, card catalogs. Uh, for people still use card catalogs, apparently <laughs> in some public health departments. Oh goodness! And, uh, and and the samples themselves are are not locked. Access is wide open to people who work in the lab. Um, and are they anonymized or no? 
No, in most cases, they are not anonymous. They're not. not, so you not know who it is. Yeah. These are, these are, this is a very different system uh, than you would expect to find for research samples or for clinical care samples. Um, and, and it's particularly unusual because, again, it's the state that is taking and maintaining the samples. Oh my and most gosh. people have no idea this is even going on. Now, the abuses um, have been few, but they've been real. Uh, the, uh, for example, uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a big lawsuit in the state of Texas because it was found um, that uh, the state of Texas uh, newborn blood bank had actually shared samples with a, uh, with a military lab that was doing research. Mm. Um, these, so these types of, uh, of privacy lapses occur, uh, and, and, they, and they have become more frequent. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the transparency uh, of this process in particular is extremely limited. So, Jeremy, so if, if somebody is listening in here and they're about to have a baby, is there some way that they can say, oh, yeah, you do this test, I want the result of the test, but I'm opting out of you saving this? Can they do that? Well, it really depends on the state. Mm-hmm. Um, most states have what's called an opt-out system uh, where uh, you are determined to have given consent if, unless, you, uh, unless you speak up and, and uh, choose not to. Unfortunately, this is a situation where uh, people are, are, are too willing to give up uh, their privacy because there are very real and tangible health benefits uh, to having this type of testing done. Uh, I, I don't think anyone, uh, uh, including myself, would, would, would begin to argue that we shouldn't have newborn screening in this country. Right. Uh, but, but we certainly do, do need uh, a, a more transparent system, uh, a, more, uh, a, a more obvious consent system so that people actually know this is going on and have the ability to consent, not just to the procedure itself, but to decide whether or not once the process is over, whether they want their sample to continue to be in a, in a, in a biobank uh, or whether they want their sample destroyed. Uh, these are choices that, that uh, the public are, are, are not being given um, in many states. And, uh, and we need uh, far more attention uh, in this area as well as a host of other areas where, where genomic information is increasingly being used. And, you know, Jeremy, you said that, you know, this has been going on for like 20 years, so these little babies have grown up. And we don't know what the challenges are going to be, you know, with, with who's going to get this information and how, how it might be sold. You know, this information can be sold. It's worth, it's valuable. And it could be sold to companies that would have a, a use of it, that they would then have databases and sell on that. So, so it seems to me, I mean, if I were having a baby now, I would say, okay, I want this information. Yes, I'll, I'll agree to this test, but I would personally write and you know write something down and say yeah i'll agree to this test only for us for my doctor and for me and um and then i want it destroyed afterwards i don't know if they would even allow me to do that but that's well unfortunately uh as i said the the way the system has developed is a very unusual one the whole system in every state uh runs through the public health department not through the doctor and not through the hospital they're simply given the results Oh, um, I see. So, so you 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 can't even choose uh, to to have this type of screening done in a different type of context. Of course, I, I'm sure you could subsequently choose to have individual tests done uh, with your primary care physician. But, but the point is, is that yeah. the entire system the entire system is really set up in a way um, that makes consent uh, very difficult 
to to give and receive and makes uh, privacy a, a, an incredibly important concern. The the you know probably even uh, an even greater concern, of course, with regards to privacy is is the increasing use of uh, of genetic information in the commercial sector. Right, uh, and that's of course an area where uh, where the buying and selling of, of genetic information is really the uh, the foundation of the system itself. Yes, and you know, um, Jeremy, we are out of time. Would you believe it? So that means we have to have you back real soon to talk about all these commercial uses that are just, um, we could have gone for two hours, I swear. <laughs> you are wonderful, Jeremy. So why don't you give your website again so people can go and learn about it and also they can pick up this great book. Are you selling this on the website too, The Biotechnology in Our Lives? Is that available on your uh, website? No, it's available on it's available on Amazon or, or from any any uh, uh, website okay. uh, that sells books, uh, but you can learn about uh, this, uh, the, this issue and many other genetics-related issues by going to the Council for Responsible Genetics website at www.councilforresponsiblegenetics.org. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful work that you do, and you're just filled with wonderful, fabulous information, and we thank you so much. We'll have you back again really soon. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Mari. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us an email about what you're worried about in, with privacy in your life. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.